Welcome, listeners, to the MK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on March 10, 2021. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and joining me today via Zoom is retired Lieutenant Colonel Steve Tharp to talk about joint exercises. Don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will grow. And I'd like to encourage all of our listeners to check out NK News, your specialist source for trusted information on North Korea. Get behind the headlines at nknews.org. In fact, our guest today is a subscriber, aren't you, Steve? Yes, I am. So to introduce our guest properly, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Tharp is a retired U.S. Army officer whose 28-year career included 14 years in career-based assignments in the 2nd Infantry Division and the UNC Military Armistice Commission. After retiring, he served another 12 years in Korea as a U.S. civil servant, managing the U.S. Forces Korea Outreach Activities and Good Neighbor Program. He's also a veteran of hundreds of meetings with North Korean Army and Chinese Army officers at the Joint Security Area near Panmunjom. He is currently writing and publishing a series of frontline tourism books designed to educate the public on the Demilitarized Zone, or DMZ, and the Korean Armistice Agreement. Thanks for coming back on the show, Steve. Glad to be back, Jacko. I thought it was a good time to have you on to talk about exercises since some scaled down version of joint rock US exercises started this week. Why are military exercises in South Korea important? Well, it's not that they're just important here. They're important everywhere. The, uh, the most important thing that a country does is protects its borders and the security of its citizens. And that's done by the military. If you accept the concept to losing the war is unacceptable, then what needs to happen is to make sure our forces here are best prepared to deal with such a horrible possibility, you know, such as that of a reinitiation of hostilities in the Korean War. A segment of the military's training and education program comes through exercises. If you're not exercising, then you're not maintaining your force to be as ready as it should be. That's the important part. Okay, so the, the base uh, reason or justification for them is, is, is readiness, is that right? It's all about readiness. You know, we have to have people that are here ready to go to war. If not, we may get a repeat of what happened in 1950 when the Americans came here from Japan. They weren't prepared for a shooting war. They thought they were going to get here and the North Koreans were going to see them and say, oh, yeah, okay, we're going to go back to 38th parallel now. But it didn't happen that way. And the Americans there at Task Force Smith, just north of Osan were overrun fairly quickly because they were untrained, poorly equipped, and undermanned. Do exercises also serve a political purpose? Everything is political. You, you know, the uh, for our previous president in the United States, for him, it, there was a political purpose to canceling them. And whether you're downscaling because of money, mm-hmm. in 1994, when they... Uh, announced they weren't going to do team spirit anymore. Part of that was based on uh, resources. They said, well, we, we can't spend all that big money bringing all these troops around. We, we got to figure out different ways to do this. So are exercises expensive? Well, they can be very expensive. They can be very cheap. And it really depends on what level of exercise you're talking about. You know, how many uh, uh, service members are involved and, and also what kind of equipment is involved. Right. Okay. I understand that there's different uh, definitions or different types of exercise. You've got uh, field, uh, command post, 
joint exercises, simulation exercises, etc. So what are the different levels? Just kind of sketch a, a brief overview for us, if you would, please. Almost everything is an exercise. So if you have soldiers out, you know, say American soldiers and South Korean soldiers at a firing range together, that could be considered an exercise. When I was a young soldier, we used to participate in exercises, not only here in Korea, but also in the United States, where they would bring in, uh, you know, many thousands of soldiers. And so that's one type. The, the current exercise that's being done is, is really more of a command post exercise. So everybody's inside the command post and they're reacting to computer simulation, which has been worked up for many months in advance, you know, in terms of a scenario and, and how this is all going to work. And so what the people are doing there is they're learning their wartime job. Mm -hmm. They're on the staff here, but they don't get a chance to practice their wartime job. And it's a lot different uh, if you're in the headquarters building down at Camp Humphreys or uh, in Yongsan than to move down to uh, one of the bunkers, wherever your wartime position is, and understand how to do your job from there. Am I correct in understanding that a, a command post exercise based on a computer simulation is mainly, mainly involves officers? No, it's not just, well, it's, it's mostly the staff officers, but they've got a lot of enlisted and civilian support there as well. Right. But the average GI out there in the field, is he doing much during a command post exercise? Not unless he's assigned to the headquarters. It's only the enlisted guys in the headquarters that are part of that. There, there might be some augmentation that are helping out with things, but it's, uh, it's mostly the, the senior staff officers. Part of this, uh, you also have to train the generals how to do their job as well. I, ah, so I, remember, I remember a quote from World War I said, well, you have to kill about 15,000 soldiers to train a general. Oh, <laughs> some kind of grim humor there? Well, it, I don't think it was humorous for the, uh, the soldiers in World War I, but, no. but you know, this was, it, it reflects the, uh, that the general staffs, uh, especially in the Western uh, armies, were not trained. And so the generals would make blunders and, and kill many thousands of people in, in battles that maybe shouldn't have died. Now, the, the current joint exercise that's on that started this week, uh, what's the name of it? Because they used to have some um, interesting evocative names, didn't they? I mean, you, you've mentioned Team Spirit already, and then there was a Focus Lens, and then Ulchi Focus Lens, uh, the much more prosaic reception staging, onward movement and integration, or I, RSO and I, uh, Fold Eagle, Key Resolve, and then uh, Ulchi Freedom Guardian. But have they stopped naming them? I just couldn't find a name for this. I would huh. think that this should be a, uh, a version of Key Resolve because it's been 18 months since, uh, since the previous president said we're not going to uh, play war games. And, you know, this is a combined and joint command post exercise. You know, there, there's a difference between combined and joint that is often lost on people. Combined means two or more nations. Joint is two or more military services. Ah, okay. So joint refers to the different branches of the military. Yeah, that's within our uh, military terminology. Okay. It doesn't mean that other people say it the same way, but that's right. the way we say it. Now, um, what's the, the role and importance of operational control or, or OPCON in, in exercises? 
well, you know, that in your original question, you said OpCon and then operational command. Yeah, I read. Those are two different things. Operational control, OpCon, is control given when one side temporarily gives control of specific forces for specific operations. And so that's what exists or that's what existed here in Korea for armistice up until 1994. Now, because we haven't gone to war, the uh, the South Koreans haven't had to give that up. But that's still, a, they still have to go through a government process to provide OPCON to uh, uh, Combined Forces Command in wartime. OPCOM, though, Operational the U.S. Command. President, yeah, the U.S. President commands U.S. troops. Rock President commands Rock troops. There's no exceptions. We have op OPCON that is normally granted to CFC when you get to a, a certain phase in, in a crisis. We haven't done that since 1994, so I'm not sure that uh, anybody knows exactly how to do it. But one of the purposes of an exercise like this mm -hmm. is that the Korean government, you know, in the uh, the old Uchi Focus Lens and then Uchi Freedom Guardian, the, the summer exercise, part of that is a command post exercise conducted by the ROC government. And so then they go through all these processes, you know, and, and it gives them a chance to figure out what they're supposed to do in a crisis or in a war. They're the ones that have to actually formally give that operational control. We may have it designated in the op plan. We may have an agreement that it's going to happen, but they still have to do it. The, the Korean government formally has to do it. It's not just some automatic thing that happens at a certain time. Okay, so when, when there's an exercise, when there's a, a combined exercise with the forces of the Republic of Korea and the United States, uh, who's actually uh, in charge? Who's, who's giving the orders? You know, this is a whole different deal than, the, uh, than just talking about exercises, because it, this gets into the way that the units react with each other. But the, the simple line is the combined forces commander is the lead guy in the exercise. Mm-hmm. And so without talking command relationships in detail and confusing everyone, yeah. it's better to just kind of leave it with that. The combined forces commander right now is a uh, U.S. military officer. But under the uh, what we're looking at in the future, that could be a uh, South Korean military officer. Is the, uh, the current combined forces command commander... Uh, the same as the head of, of uh, United Nations Command and uh, and USFK. Yes, General Abrams. All right, uh, Steve. The the concept of interoperability. I hear that a lot when talking about exercises. Can you define that for us? What does it mean? It's really critical for military units, um, especially when we've got guys from different countries, different services, even. Back in 1983, during the invasion of Grenada, the U.S. realized it had huge interoperability problems as the Navy and the Army guys couldn't talk to each other. It's the capability of systems, units, or forces to kind of provide data, information, material, and services to, and accept the thing that are the same from the other services, units, or forces, and to use the data, information, material, and services in a way to operate effectively together. You know, if your radios don't talk, uh, that's a big issue. And I mentioned that before when we talked about uh, some of the computer uh, issues between the U.S. 
classified computers and the Korean classified computers. Okay, because for, for non-military people, often, I guess, on a very simple level, when we think about interoperability, well, when I think about it as, as a complete novice, I just imagined it would be something very basic like, um, you know, could a, uh, a, a Navy bullet fit into an Army gun, for example, if necessary, you know, but it's really more about uh, command and control and communication. Is that right? It's, you know, that's another aspect of it. Ammunition is a big deal. One of the reasons that the South Koreans are always pushed by the Americans to buy American systems is because we have an easier time with, with uh, replenishing ammunition. Uh-huh. We don't have to worry about Korean ammunition for Koreans and American ammunition for Americans. And we had the same problem during the war. Some units that came to fight in the Korean War, they left their own uh, weapons at home and uh, received American military weapons when they got here just to ease the supply issues. Okay, so that's also part of the interoperability. Yeah, it's anything that uh, helps integrate the, uh, the force, you know, and, and, and make it uh, seamless, you know, in, in terms of dealing together. And that's for both um, across the different branches of the services, but also uh, between countries. Exactly. So these exercises are a perfect vehicle for improving the interoperability, not only between the Korean and American uh, staffs, but also between the military staffs of the different services within the two nations. And because over the past decade or so, we've seen the inclusion of delegations from other United Nations command nations in the exercises. And that brings a new dimension regarding the interoperability issues and allows us how to best integrate those forces in wartime. Right. Can we simplify it and say that there are, uh, broadly speaking, uh, two main groups of exercises, one kind being the command post and the other kind being the field type? Well, yeah, that, that's a, uh, a good way to say it, perhaps. The field exercises are very small these days because, mm. you know, just the lack of uh, maneuver terrain around right. here. But the command post exercises, those are the major ones that we hear the complaints of that they're provocative. And they're not provocative unless you're staking out uh, the, the bunkers, the wartime bunkers of the, uh, the different headquarters, you, you're not even aware that they're taking places, you know, they, they're just invisible to everyone else because they're literally underground. You have to have, uh, two military organizations working together, you know, interoperability so that when they come together, you don't have big complications. Um, for instance, when you have Korean and uh, American soldiers, you have a language issue that you have to address. Right. And so you have to make sure, in, in, in this case, in Combined Forces Command, both languages are, uh, are used. And so everything's got to be done in both languages. And that's one of the things that they, they deal with out here on these exercises, how they accomplish that. The Combined Forces Command staff is actually better placed because these guys work together every day. And so the Korean officers and the American officers know each other. It's, uh, it's not as big a deal. But, you know, even interoperability, you have to deal with between branches of the service. So you have to make sure that your radios can talk to each other. That's a, another um, big deal, your communication systems. So if 
our classified computers don't have a method for talking with the Korean classified computers, that's a, uh, a glitch there that we have to solve. Right. And we either have to get them talking or have everybody have the same computer or some kind of workaround. Okay. And is, it all, is interoperability also designed to avoid uh, redundancies? You could kind of say that uh, if we've got good oper interoperability between the South Korean and U.S. forces, mm -hmm. then we can make sure that we're we're both not servicing the same uh, target. You know, in the case of of aircraft or artillery or something like that. But yeah, that's that's probably a a, a fair thing to say. Yeah, that's an example of interoperability. Okay, and at readiness, which we've mentioned before, is it just simply the state of being ready for any eventuality, like, for example, an, an attack by uh, another country, or is it a bit more complicated than that? Well, in this case, because we are in a, a war zone, Korea is still in a state of war, we have to have a higher level of readiness. If the guys in the headquarters aren't getting out to do their, uh, their wartime missions, then this is a problem. We can't wait until the artillery starts landing mm -hmm. and people say, oh, uh, which, which computer is mine? Which desk is mine? Right. Where do I go to? And, and you have to be able to talk to each other when you get out there. It's, the headquarters is a very complex being. It's not something you can, you can just walk in when the, the firing starts and, and expect it to be working well. It also, you know, allows you to, to train with the person that you think that you're going to go to war with and uh, establish those personal relationships that are also very important. Ah, okay. So that's also one of the importance of exercises to, uh, to basically get people used to each other in, on a personal level. Right. Um, for instance, when the commander uh, has a meeting with his uh, army commanders out there, you know, he can see them on the screen. He can talk to them. Mm. and they get a chance to brief and they get a chance to see him and for the rest of the staff it's it's a uh it's an opportunity for the general to see who does what to whom in one room now he he sees that during the uh the regular armistice uh period state of affairs in the headquarters but it's it's a little different when you get out into the bunker and and uh have to deal with things out there and additionally, when you go to the bunker, and, and, and there's different bunkers around depending on which headquarters you're in and what your particular mission is, but just maintaining those physical facilities. It's, it's a lot different maintaining an empty facility in terms of air conditioning and, and uh, heaters and things like that. But when you actually have people in them and you're stressing the system, then you have to be able to deal with that. The guys that fix those classified computers, you know, this is a, a bigger opportunity for them because they're having to deal with breakdowns and, and uh, malfunctions within the computer stuff, and they have to fix them there in the, the wartime site. A lot different than, say, if you're at Yongsan or Camp Humphreys. What was the first joint or combined exercise that you yourself participated in? The, uh, the first one here came about a month after I got here. It was called Capstan Dragon. And our infantry battalion flew down to Pohong and spent a week training with the Korean Marines there and finished it up with a, uh, a little one-day field training exercise. 
1979. These battalion level exercises, they take place a lot and they go unnoticed. The next spring, I participated in Team Spirit 80, and two months after that, was in another cross or was in an exercise that we used to do in the Second Infantry Division with the South Koreans all the time called Crossbuck. Again, about a week long exercise. For our non military listeners, how large is a battalion? A uh, battalion's about 800 men. Okay, Infantry so, battalion. So a battalion exercise would involve about that size, uh, uh, that number of men or women. Right. But, you know, we also had a South Korean army unit, and I assumed that it was a battalion that was uh, our adversary in this process, where we would attack and then we would uh, defend and they would attack. Is it like, you know, when you see uh, on TV those uh, reenactment of, of battle scenes, are you actually pretending to shoot each other on a field and one person has to fall down dead? Well, it's kind of like that. It, at least it was in those days. These days, uh, because they're, they've got the laser systems, you know, and it's, it's like a giant game of laser tag. And so you have better ability to assess and, and determine who was the victor and who was the loser. Uh, now, Team Spirit, was that the largest um, of all the exercise types at that time? It, it seemed quite a big one with uh, 200,000 soldiers involved. Right. It was a big force-on-force -force exercise. So you had major units, brigades, and, and things meeting, and then all of their related support guys. And that battlefield area was kind of to the southeast of Seoul, around the Yoju area. That started in 1976 and continued through, I think it's still on the books, but we just have opted not to do it since 1993. I was, right. I also participated in 1993 in the, uh, the last one. I was a army captain studying Korean and I was assigned to uh, spend the two weeks with, a, with the South Korean's 30th Infantry Division headquarters. And what was that like? Well, I was pretty interesting being the only non-Korean in the headquarters. There were, there were times where they would ask me to leave the tent so that they could discuss something that wasn't for my years. Mostly it was a, a bonding uh, experience. Good chance to, to get a feel for how they worked their system. And how did you notice, I mean, what kind of changes did you notice between the uh, 1979 first exercise and the 2016 last exercise for you? Other than that, I was a lot heavier than I'd been in uh, 1980. <laughs> the, technically, uh, I mean, technologically, a lot of things were different. Yeah, it was uh, night and day. I, I did a lot of exercises in the early 2000s. And the difference between those exercises and the ones that I was doing between 2013 and and 2016, it was, uh, you know, light years apart from each other. The stuff evolves all the time. Mm. That year that I was a sergeant in the second division headquarters, I worked in the exercise division. It was me and a captain. We were the exercise division. And so we coordinated the second division's participation in team spirit and ultra focused lens as well as we had our own exercise within the division that we did three quarters of the year when there wasn't an ultra focus lens. And it was a, a battalion or it was a division level command post exercise that include the brigade headquarters. So they had a chance to interact. And this was very archaic. My boss and I ran a control cell at the East KC gymnasium 
and we had big map boards uh, all over the place with markers on them and people pushing markers. We had about 200 people in the, the control cell doing everything manually that is done by computers today. Oh, like we would see on the, the films where, uh, you know, uh, the commander moved with, a, with a long stick right, uh, exactly. moves, moves and, men across the board. And then when the uh, controllers playing the North Koreans would uh, do an attack or something, uh, these guys would roll the dice and figure out the success rate for the attack. And then the, uh, the American controllers for those units would uh, go into their book and based on that, that dice roll, they would figure out what their casualties were. Mm. And then they would uh, send those to their higher headquarters. And part of the drill was to see how the brigade reacted to that in, in terms of requesting new personnel, requesting new trucks, things like that. So it was, it was a, a well-integrated exercise, but very archaic especially by, by today's uh, terms when we look at computers. It sounds almost like a military version of the game of Dungeons and Dragons. Well, and that, that may be where Dungeons and Dragons came from. <laughs> was there a, a um, gosh, what do they call it? Was there a dungeon master, someone who was sort of, you know, uh, outside the two teams <laughs> who was saying, you know, and now uh, this has come up, you know, or, you know, uh, that uh, armaments uh, uh, warehouse just exploded or something like that. You know, did you have someone throwing in elements or is it literally the, just the two armies? We had already pretty much uh, developed the scenario and we let the dice just uh, decide how things go. Mm. It was less important on, on trying to see if some uh, colonel or general was uh, a genius. It was more about letting the staff exercise mm. and, and get to do their wartime function and figure out if they could even talk to the people they needed to talk to. All those headquarters, uh, the, the division headquarters and the uh, brigade headquarters, they had to move outside of their, their buildings and, you know, set up their, uh, their tent and trailer facilities in the same way they would, but, but probably nearby their, where their headquarters building was. But they had to use their field communication systems in order to send things back and forth. So you had uh, radio teletype um, stations set up all these different things really archaic communication systems now compared to or compared to now right now obviously i don't know what they're using now but they're not picking up mobile phones so how does it work now well uh these days you a, a lot of it is done by email on the classified computer system within the headquarters out in the field the different units have radios and 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 they've got uh secure radios when i say secure that means they can handle classified material be honest it's been 20 years since i've been at that level and so i just don't know what they do in the field anymore <laughs> okay now north korea typically complains every year about exercises and has had for many decades what is their fundamental complaint about the uh, joint and combined exercises taking place on the korean peninsula well this is something that they do it's it's propaganda this isn't new they were doing this with team spirit if i can uh, read you something from um, mac meeting 1986 that's the military uh, the armistice commission meeting military armistice commission uh, the the north koreans just went through this huge rant uh probably took about 30 or 40 minutes 
And the United Nations Command uh, representative says, you speak of exercises as though only the UNC ever conducts them. Over the years, your side has conducted extensive military training exercises, but at no time has your side ever announced these exercises, either minor ones or major ones. In the past, your side has conducted massive, secretive, nationwide tri-service exercise, which have included paratroop drops, da 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 goes all the way down. The North Koreans do this every year, but at the same time, they they have this huge winter training cycle that starts around the 1st of December and goes up through the middle of March. And it's never advertised. It's uh, They've never invited us uh, to observe it. Starting in, a, in, in about 1982, because of one of these massive uh, winter training exercises, the United Nations Command up at the Joint Security Area invited the North Koreans to all come and observe the exercise and, and also the uh, the Chinese general that was there. Which exercise were they invited to at that time? Team Spirit. Team Spirit. And did they send anyone to observe? N- no, no. Where would they have been observing from if they had come? Well, the, the details of that aren't, aren't very clear. Hmm. Not sure that anyone believed that they would come in the first place. So it might have been a surprise had they said, oh, yeah, we'll come. And that was in 82. Have they been invited since then? They were invited to Team Spirit. I, I tracked it through about 87, 88. I didn't look at all the, uh, the MAC things, but, but they were invited, uh, I think, to all the Team Spirit exercises from 1982 on. You know, Doing it for team spirit is one thing, but trying to do it for one of our exercises right now, like the one that's going on this week, is a whole different thing because everything that is being dealt with is classified material. And so you can't even go into the bunker without having a clearance. So you, for example, you as a as a, uh, a retired officer, you wouldn't be able to just flash your old ID and walk in there. No, no, you you have to have uh, a current security clearance, and mm-hmm. you know I don't know how they're checking them now. Then we had some kind of a badge to uh, to get in, and and it had to be issued for the exercise. I'm just curious now, the way you describe it, were spies part of the uh, the exercise too? Like, would they? You know, when you had two teams operating against each other, um, would some people be tasked with the mission of infiltrating the the other command bunker and getting some secrets out? That That's a little far-fetched. What might happen is you might have um, folks, intelligence uh, folks that are worried about operational security going around checking to, to make sure that the guards were checking everybody that came in and out mm-hmm. and uh, to make sure that people were not transporting classified material in a uh, improper manner. And, and in, the gar- in the command post exercises, you don't have a them. Okay. You know, it's, it's all us. It's all us. Uh, to go back to the, uh, the North Korean complaints, um, I think one of the common themes is that the, uh, the combined exercises here in South Korea are uh, aggressive or provocative, uh, designed to simulate, you know, the, uh, the destruction or decapitation of North Korea. Uh, is that accurate? No, it's defensive in nature. It's uh, the scenario always starts based on a North Korean attack. Always. Always. Nothing that originates from our side. And during that first part of it, we're actually uh, kind of wargaming ways to get the crisis to an off-ramp. 
you know, if you're kind of on the road to war like that, what you want to do is you want to you want to hope that there's some way to get to the off-ramp so you don't get all the way to war. So kind of a de-escalation effort. Is that part of the, right. the exercise too, is it? Right. And, and it also in- includes scenario stuff where different politicians around the world are trying to get an easing of tension, but then it fails. And, and see, it's important for us to go through that because we do go through crises sometimes. Mm. And and we go to our, uh, our our little stations at the the local command post, the emergency command post. You know, I would I would do this, and sitting next to me would be my uh, South Korean counterpart. We would have the same mission, but doing it in the different languages. In in terms of crisis, then we would be reacting to that. For instance, when the the shelling took place in. Uh, uh, Yongpyeongdo back in 2010, you know, they set up uh, this uh, crisis team, crisis action team that stayed in place for a few weeks to, to help try to de-escalate the, the situation and keep an eye on it so that we could uh, react accordingly. So that even though it was a real life situation, it, it involved uh, techniques from exercises. Well, it's, it's techniques that we train in exercises then when we have to do that for real, people aren't surprised. Now, South Korean peace organizations and civic groups also complain about exercising, say, exercises, saying that they foster antipathy uh, in North Korea and, and hurt the peace process. Do you agree with that? No. The, the North Koreans are going to object to these things, and that's just the way it is. The North Koreans train much heavier than we do, and, and theirs are provocative, as I mentioned, um, from December through March, they they train every one of their organizations. They start at the the lowest level, the the soldier, and work up through the squad and and platoon and stuff. And then by March, they're at the zenith of their offensive readiness. That's provocative. They they do them secretively. We announce our exercises. We let everybody know we're doing it. How has North Korea's shift towards asymmetric capabilities, such as weapons of mass destruction, uh, special operations forces, long military, uh, long-range artillery tubes, how have they affected exercises? They haven't. Uh, the North Koreans have always uh, had kind of an asymmetrical look to it. It's just now we, we look at the nuke. And so the, the nuke part of it means that's something that we have to be prepared to deal with. Um, South, President, South Korean President Moon Jae-in and North Korea's Chairman Kim Jong-un signed the Panmunjom Declaration on April 27, 2018, almost three years ago. And in September of that year, there was the Comprehensive Military Agreement signed in Pyongyang. Uh, and famously, in June of that year, President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un had a summit in which uh, the president declared that he would stop the exercises, calling them war games. Tell us what the the agreements did that year to the uh, the calendar exercises. The CMA was wasn't as big a deal. It it did prevent some uh, some flying along the DMZ that we need for intelligence purposes. But postponement of exercises did have a bigger impact. Not initially. In the past, we did these four-star level command post exercises twice a year. You do one in August, and that's when all the new guys arrived in Korea. Mm. They get here in the summer, and so they could get trained right away in the exercise. And then you have kind of a refresher in, in March. We, we lost that. Now, one time is not a big deal. 
And General Abrams, pretty smart guy. I think he uh, came up with some ways to prevent a, a complete degradation of this ability, but it, you can only do it for so long. And then once you lose all the people that have gone through these exercises and understand how to, how to do this, then that's when it starts taking a bigger effect. And so I think it's good that we were able to do it this year. Last year would have been very difficult because of the COVID virus. Mm. But to be honest, that's something you also have to deal with if there's a war. You have to be able to fight it with the, uh, with the COVID virus lingering out there. So, you know, that's one of the challenges that they have to deal with this time. So we're doing the, uh, they're doing the, the spring command post exercise now. Do you anticipate that there would be a, a summer field exercise as well this year? You know, I don't think I want to try to anticipate anything <laughs> right now. Um, that's a long way away. And, and I think we'll get a better feel for what the, whatever happens as the result of this one. How has the, uh, the shortening of South Korean conscription terms changed the exercises and their value? It hasn't changed them, but I do think it's made them more important. And it's not because of what happens on the exercise. It's because I think that the South Korean enlisted force has been degraded by that and by the fact that the demographics here just don't support a large group of young men that are able to, to go and serve in the military. And so it's it's caused the military to be reduced in size. And so then that means you have to do things a little differently if you have fewer forces. And it gives the commanders, the combined forces commander, as well as, as his uh, subordinate commanders, a chance to maybe address how to, to change those things. But I, I don't think anybody's speaking of it. They just kind of know it's out there. They, they don't have as much time. So you're, you, uh, it seems like you're linking the, um, or at least bringing in also the, uh, the fact that South Korea's population is on the decrease now, uh, together with the shortening of, of conscription terms, that that's uh, changing the South Korean military and, and requiring some responses to it. Right. And that's really beyond the, the realm of the exercises. That's a, a bigger readiness issue that the South Korean military has to deal with. Right. But if, as you say, uh, a year of exercises is, is, is skipped or two years even, uh, that can really change the, uh, uh, the state of readiness of the individual soldiers, can't it? Well, not really. What we're talking about, skipping these exercises is skip, skipping them at the very highest levels, you know, the four-star general level. The other exercises continue to take place, though I did look at a piece recently and the number of exercises between South Korean and U.S. Army and Marine units, they dropped significantly in 2020 because of COVID. Mm. But exercises between Air Force and Naval uh, forces actually increased. And part of that is because ground guys, Army and, and Marines, they have to be face-to-face. -face. And that's a bigger problem in the uh, COVID-19 world. Whereas naval ships and airplanes and stuff, they're, they're at a distance. They don't have to get, you know, face to face. Now, um, when you first came uh, to Korea in 79, as you said earlier, the, uh, uh, the U.S. military um, or the, the infantry units uh, wasn't full 
uh, integration of, of men and women yet. Because I'm thinking about the difference that in the Korean military, uh, still you've got a, a large number of, uh, of conscripts, you know, filling out the, the lower ranks there. And the conscripts are still only men, um, but there are women in the South Korean military. So I'm wondering how that, how that affects uh, the, the workings between the American and the South Korean militaries. The male-female cultural gaps are probably not as wide as the uh, U.S.-Korean cultural gaps. I, I don't think that's a big deal. I, I think there's a positive aspect. Um, when the South Korean military deal a lot with the females in the U.S. military, because I think it, it probably helps the credibility of the uh, South Korean military female soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, because the, the South Korean men have to get used to dealing with women, you know, and they, uh, in, in, in uniform, and I think it's a little hard for them sometimes. You mean because the, the culture of, uh, of the uh, South Korean military is still very male dominated? Exactly. And especially in the infantry, mm. especially in the combat arms, though South Korea does have female infantry officers. I don't think they're commanding and in frontline units, I think they're uh, commanding training units. Mm, okay. Um, what should we at NK News bear in mind about exercises and, and really not forget about exercise when we're writing about them? You know, one of the things that I, I usually see in the media, and sometimes from you guys, is this idea that they are war games, that, you know, there's tanks driving all around and, and, uh, getting close to the DMZ and, and presenting a, a threat like that to the North Koreans. You know, if we didn't tell the North Koreans when an exercise was, if we didn't announce it to the world, no one would know. So they're not because at all visible just, or audible from the demilitarized zone then? No, not at all. They're not even close to the demilitarized zone. Depends on where each rock army headquarters is at. But uh, I would say that probably 30 kilometers or more. And again, we're talking about a bunker type facility. And so um, just by its nature, it's not going to be observable. So to reiterate, you're saying that if if the uh, the rock and US militaries didn't announce exercises, uh, and if they weren't reported on in the, in the media, uh, North Korea wouldn't know they were happening. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's the, the North Koreans need something that they can use to you know, say that we're the aggressor to, uh, to call us the imperialists. Again, because of this particular podcast, I got to get a chance and go back and read some of the old military armistice commission meeting minutes. And just the, the language of the North Koreans is so classic. It's, you know, they call us Yankee imperialists and things like that. Boy, you just don't get that anymore. But uh, haven't there been times, Steve, when uh, during exercises or around exercises, there have been things like um, uh, U.S. military flybys or flyovers or flying near the North Korean uh, uh, air, airspace? There have, but it wasn't part of the exercise. It was part of a real world response to a North Korean provocation. Said another way, it's completely divorced. In fact, I remember one. We were uh, we were in the the command post, and you know, we all had to monitor this as something that was real world, as opposed to exercise. Sometimes, when the real world looks just like the exercise, 
during the exercise, we go, oh, wow, great scenario creation. <laughs> but it turns <laughs> out it's real. We, have, we, we, we had one exercise that was pretty much like that. Uh, you know, not we obviously didn't uh, get into the war part of it, but just in the buildup to war, it looked like uh, the guy writing the scenario was directing real-world traffic. Right. Are there ever uh, decapitation strikes uh, played out in these exercises? You know, I, I couldn't talk about anything that goes on within the exercise because that's classified. And even though I don't hold a clearance anymore, I'm still, well, you talked to Marcus Garlaska, same thing. We still have this stuff in our brain, but we can't really discuss mm. the scenarios within the exercise. All right. So that's, that, and does that remain classified for many years after the exercises actually happen? I would guess 25 years. You could probably uh, FOIA things from uh, UFL in, what, 1995 and see what they do. Ultra focus lens, that is. Yeah. Uh, I understand that was a, a com mainly a computer simulation um, scenario uh, it, exercise. It's exact, both, both exercises to the participant that is not the general and not the, uh, the guy actually setting it up. They both look the same to the participant. Just looks like we're doing a spring version and a summer version. And okay. um, Steve, could you walk us through some of the historical exercises that have happened here on the Korean Peninsula over time and, and just tell us a couple of facts about each of them? Yeah, the, uh, the oldest of the command post exercises was ultra focus lens. And it, it was a combination of the focus lens exercise conducted by the United Nations Command since 1954 and the ULCI exercise that the ROC government started in 1969 as a result of the 1968 uh, North Korean commando raid on the Blue House. The two were combined in 1976 and it involved evolved into a computer simulated command post exercise that trained combined forces command personnel as well as their major components using state-of-the-art wargaming. Team Spirit, and I'll talk about Team Spirit a little more, it field-tested capabilities, military capabilities. Ultra Focus Lens kind of looked at, at readiness from the command post perspective. And those are the, uh, that's the, what the majority of the major exercises we, we have now, they do the same thing. They look at, at the command and control aspect. It was always held at the end of August in time so that the bulk of the summer personnel rotations were complete beforehand. So it became instrumental in training the new staff officers that had arrived during the summer rotation. This exercise was last held in 2007. I participated in nine of them between 1980 and 2005. The United Nations Command started notifying the North Koreans of UFL beginning in 1998. Next, we have its replacement, which is UFG or Ultra Freedom Guardian. The, it's essentially a, a renamed replacement for UFL. And it did all the same things uh, in terms of training the staff, also held in the uh, August timeframe. It began in 2008 and was suspended by the former US president in the summer 2008 after the Singapore summit. 2018. You mean or 2018, I mean, yeah. and the uh, the rock and U.S. governments agreed later to cancel it. I participated in five UFGs between 2012, 2016. 
That for those now, listening at home, UFG, that's uh, Ultra, 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 Ultra Freedom Guardian. Right. Again, you have the Ulchi exercise, which was the South Korean government exercise. What do they do in wartime? And then uh, Freedom Guardian uh, replaced Focus Lens. And will they be held this year, do you expect? Uh, it's my understanding they've been permanently canceled huh. by the uh, previous administration. Okay. So if we can back up now yeah. on team spirit was the big force on force thing that always took place in the March timeframe. This lasted from 1976 to 1993. And this grew to as many as 200,000 participants by the late 1980s. It, it pitted rock and U.S. ground forces against each other, but it wasn't really held near the DMZ. It was, it was closer to the Yoju area, southeast of Seoul. And when you say it pitted rock against U.S. forces, one side was pretending to be an enemy force. Is that right? Right. I think we had orange and blue forces, but it would be rock and U.S. forces on both sides uh, ah. going against each other. And, okay. and, you know, so that you got to work on interoperability issues. Right. Now, the reason it was conducted in the early spring was because this was before the planting season. Korea was not so urbanized then, and, and you could actually do these big force-on-force uh, -force exercises. I can't even imagine trying to do team spirit in the Korea of 2021. It's <laughs> because the, uh, the landscape has literally changed so dramatically. This exercise was last held in uh, 1993. It, it was suspended for a year in 92 out of deference to North Korea and then uh, canceled after that. I was involved in four of these between 1990 or 1980 and 1993. Beginning in 1994 to kind of uh, fill in the gap of something that was being lost by the cancellation of team spirit was rsoi or an acronym for reception staging onward movement and integration and essentially that's the process of bringing forces in from the outside normally we think of american forces but it, in these days it could be from other U united nations command nations getting them on the ground in pusan or wherever they land and getting them linked up with their equipment, you know, getting them bedded down, and then getting them moved forward to the battle area. And so RSOI was, because this traditionally took place during team spirit, we didn't need the big exercise, but we needed something to kind of simulate that. And so it became a, a computer simulation exercise designed to do that. In the uh, process of doing that, it expanded to be a, uh, basically a springtime UFL where it, it exercised the whole command post. It was conducted, I said, as I mentioned in the March-April timeframe, originally started in April and kind of slid back to March over the years because it was incorporated with Full Eagle in the uh, later 90s to, uh, to look at other aspects. And I'll get to that when I get to Full Eagle. Anyway, it was replaced by Key Resolve, um, after uh, it was canceled in 2007. Same time that UFL went away, RSI went away, but they were replaced by exercises that looked and felt and tasted the same. Um, in the case of UFL, it was uh, Ulchi Freedom Guardian. And then in the case of RSOI, it was Key Resolve. 
it did the same things that RSOI did in many ways. It was uh, also last held in 2018 uh, because it was held before the summit. Uh. I participated in four of those. And then Full Eagle is, is the one that, that's kind of been going on all along. It originated in 1961 as a, a Korean battalion level exercise, you know, roughly eight, 900 men. And in 1975, it expanded into a combined special forces exercise that tested uh, certain taskings that, that were in the uh, operations plan, war plan. That's when I got to know it, 1980, when it was a uh, special forces type thing. But after the cancellation of Team Spirit, it expanded um, to, it was up to as high as a, a core level. Now, core is, uh, it's probably 30 to 50,000 soldiers. It became a core level exercise by 1997. But then in 2001, it was combined with uh, the RSOI exercise. And so when I remember it, it, it took place in October in, in 1980, and then it moved into the springtime and uh, always was held with Full Eagle and then uh, later with Key Resolve until uh, 2018. It's, it focused on rear air security, stability operations, onward movement of uh, critical assets, special operations, ground maneuver, amphibious exercises all kinds of things, but it was designed for the rear area. It died a death with Key Resolve in 2018. How do you keep all this straight? There's so much, uh, so many details to remember there. I, I, I've understood all that you've said, but I, I doubt that I could repeat it to somebody else. Well, it's, uh, you know, I mentioned that I've been in several of these exercises several times. And, yes. And and even for a uh, a knothead like me, you finally uh, starts to sink in after a while, which is why you keep exercising. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on the show today and walking us through those exercises, Steve. It's uh, it's been a great learning experience for me, and I hope that our listeners have learned something from it too. So, thanks once again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me again, Jacko. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you like what you heard on this podcast, visit us at nknews.org, your trusted source for updates on everything North Korea, written and produced by field specialists. Become a member today at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast, and to Arias Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks, and listen again next time. <laughs>